Well, let's dive in this morning. We're going back into Ephesians, looking at chapter 3, and we're going to just dive right in. Daniel, I, for some reason, it deleted the last three verses, so I'm going to look on the screen and read from up here, okay? Here we go. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, going to verse 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dot, dot, dot. Hold on, guys. Let me pause and say something before I keep on going. All right. So this is what you, what you know is happening. Paul's just talked about the Gentiles, the Jews, the unity being built upon one another. This beautiful picture of the church. He's about to go pray for them. He says he writes the word Gentiles down and goes, oops, before I do that, let's just press pause real quick and talk about something. So if you ever done that in a conversation like no, no, no. Well, actually, before we get there, let, let's just let's just say this real quick. And then we'll come back to the major point, okay? And so obviously this is a major important point that Paul's going to make right here that of relationships, the relational peace and understanding peace. He wants to bring clarity to them, okay? So for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, take you Gentiles. Wait, before I pray, let me tell you something. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in their generations, as has been, known, been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me to the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's apostles, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Just press pause and he's talking about spiritual beings, talking about the demonic realm, okay? His intent was now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, Jesus, and through faith in him, Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Then he goes on to what he paused for. Then he goes into the prayer, starting at verse 14, that we'll look at next week. So Paul just spent, we already said, spent chapter two discussing the Gentiles, their adoption to the family of God, the responsibility of the church to walk in unity for the glory of God, right? All caused and maintained through God's grace, his power and his love. And after all is said and done in this chapter, Paul, right, he's about to write this really powerful prayer, but he stops because he wants to remind again, or maybe for the very first time, the Gentiles and the Jews, the readers of God's calling on their life, God's calling on his life, his calling to love them, to write the reason that he's in prison, to talk about the, the wisdom of God and the things that he's doing. And he breaks it down for them. And this morning, we're just going to break it down. We're going to go section by section in these verses and recognize what Paul is writing about as we really honestly kind of see the ingredients 
of this call of God on Paul's life and how it impacts specifically the Gentiles, but also the Gentiles along with the Jews. So what are we talking about this morning? We're going to look at Paul's life. We're going to look at all these different facets of his life, but specifically this calling that he has, how powerful it is, what it means to see the ingredients that kind of led to this calling. And then honestly, we'll just ask the question, how does that then become a model for us? And how does it become a model for the Jews and the Gentiles, right? Paul's living his life as an example that they are to imitate. And so, too, we are then to live the life and imitate what we see Paul doing. So we're going to dive into that this morning. So so we're going to start in verse so verse one in verse 13. Paul's in prison. OK, Paul's in prison. And he's in prison for the sake of the Gentiles. So Paul's in prison because he has a calling to the Gentiles. And this is hugely important. Paul is in prison basically, basically because he believes Gentiles have the same access to God as Jews. If he had been willing just to focus his ministry and his calling on the Jewish Christians, things would have been fine. Been no persecution. Or if he had said, hey, we're going to minister to both, but he'd put the Gentiles on a different plane, kind of underneath the Jews. Like, yes, God loves you, but Jews are still his primary people group, right? Then things would have been fine. But because he said, no, they are, we are equal. The wall of hostility has been brought down. You were being built upon one another. You are equals in the eyes of God. You were loved equally by God. The responsibility in your life to love God, to know God, and to, and to walk in faithfulness is equal. And you are now to actually be brother and sister together. And because of that, no, they just could not receive that message. And so Paul is in prison and he is being persecuted for this very reason. Now, We'll come back to this idea of prison in a second. But it's important to recognize that Paul was in prison, listen, because he felt called, he felt compelled, and he felt responsible for fighting for Gentiles. He felt called, he felt compelled, and he felt responsible for fighting for Gentiles. And he was willing to forego his own personal freedom so that they could have freedom and salvation and unity as part of God's family. So the idea of this is I want you to, to take it, I want you to do your best. Like It's hard because we just don't use the word Gentile to describe ourselves anymore, do we? Like, I don't go, hey, I'm Gentile Steve. I just don't walk around and say that, right? We don't, it's, not, it's not Gentile Pat. Gentile Pat, what's up, buddy, right? We don't do that. That's not what's happening, okay? Like, but we are. And so, so what's happening, so think of Gentiles more in the context of those who don't know Jesus. And specifically, those in our Christian culture that we think of as being less than. Whether it's socioeconomically in our minds, like who do you literally think yourself as being better than? I got an email this week from somebody who talked about he went to this, um, he went to go support somebody uh, at, at, um, at one of those celebrate recovery type of ministries, right? He said, I walked in, this, this group of addicts and this group of those who were tatted. He said, and I, and I walked in thinking how I was going to go and minister to. And he said, in my mind, I felt myself as if I was better than. I didn't think of it that way, but I, I found myself sitting there and thinking of myself as the, as the has and them as the have nots, right? And, and I found myself thinking of myself as being better than. And he said, I just got so convicted when I was listening to this message, I re- recognized those are my my Gentiles. 
Like if I were completely honest, I viewed myself as being better than. He said, I recognize that was sin in my own heart because they're equal in the eyes of God. And I was convicted. Who are your Gentiles? Who are the Gentiles in your life? Who do you look down on? Who do you go, oh, those poor people, right? And you put yourself on the pedestal and call them poor people. I'm, I need to go minister. They need me, right? And all this because you see yourself maybe being on a different plane than they are. Who are those people in your life? We all have them. And so in this story, right, Paul says, I see these Gentiles, these who are separated from God, those who are far off, those who are always viewed as being less than me. And in it, I'm now in prison for them. Like huge, right? Huge, massive shift. Foregoing his freedom so they could have freedom and salvation and unity as part of God's family. So verse two through six, we kind of then shift. So Paul's naming, I'm in prison for the call, like right, for this, for this understanding of my calling to the Gentiles. So two and six, right? Paul has, is pausing and he names a couple of things. He names the calling and he names the mystery. So first we see the calling. Paul was entrusted by God to share the good news of the Gentiles or to, the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles as his life calling. And he's sharing, right, his life calling, a mystery, he says, that God revealed to him and the other prophets and apostles. And he had it expressed to him. God brought revelation. So here's the deal. He's saying mystery is something. Basically, it's not like hidden. It's just that God had not revealed this yet. And so God brought revelation. He brought it to Peter, right? When he broke open the, the sheet with meat on it. We don't know exactly how it was expressed to Paul, but we know about Paul. And you know the story, right? He's on the way to Damascus. He just was responsible for killing Stephen. He's going and God says, he, all of a sudden he goes, all of a sudden he goes, boom, to Paul and knocks him off a donkey and says, hey, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you persecute. Uh-oh, right? Had that moment. Then he gets blinded. He goes to a room. Ananias comes and lays hands on him and prays for him. And we know for a couple of years then that Paul went into the desert and he was, he was challenged. He was, he was discipled in the moment. We don't know by whom or by what exactly, but he went into the desert for two years and he was just going and learning. And somewhere in that time, the revelation of the mystery that God's going to take those who are separated Gentiles and bring them in, he revealed it to him. We don't know exactly what it looked like exactly, but we know he did. And so God revealed, right? So Paul has this calling that was revealed to him by God. And then he says, let's name the mystery. My calling revolves around the mystery of God. He is speaking of what's defined in verse 6. Go to the second slide of the scripture, Daniel. They don't have them numbered. And it says... It says the mystery, that last full sentence, kind of the fifth sentence down. This mystery is that through the gospel, the good news of Jesus, life, death, resurrection, sending the spirit, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, the people of God, of the Jews, members together of one body and sharers together in the, in, in the promise in Christ Jesus. So Paul has this calling because he's been awakened to the mystery that those who he's always deemed as far off are brought in by the love of Jesus. That's beautiful, right? So we see the calling of Paul. We see the mystery that he's called to express. And then we get seven through nine, which Paul reminds us of his conversion, his conversion. 
We've already named it on the road to Damascus, right? Just real quick, what did Paul do to earn this intervention of God in his life? All we see is that he just killed Stephen and then God showed up. So basically, if you want God's grace to move, kill a Christian. Okay, that's bad theology right there, okay? Now, what I'm getting at is that Paul hadn't done anything. Paul hadn't done anything. He hadn't earned anything. He just had killed, killed Stephen so far away from God's will. And God stops them and says, boom, I am Jesus whom you were persecuting, Ananias. You need to go to him, lay hands on him, because he's the one I've chosen to be the proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentiles. And Ananias is like, that's a really bad idea. He's going to kill me. He's not going to go, he tells Ananias. We see Paul's conversion by grace through faith. God took Paul, who was far off, and brought him in as part of the family. This is Paul's conversion. God showed extreme grace, didn't he? He didn't earn it. He hadn't done anything. He hadn't cleaned himself up. He was still pretty. He had literally the blood of Stephen on him. Figuratively, maybe even practically, I have no idea, right? That's what he had going on, and God said he saved him. And so what we find then is he'd experienced an unbelievably high measure of grace, of compassion, of mercy, of God's forgiveness. He had received a high measure of grace, compassion, mercy, and forgiveness. That's Paul's conversion. Therefore, because of God's grace, what does he then feel compelled to do? Extend a high measure of grace. Because he had experienced God's grace, he extends grace in verse 8 through 9 by preaching to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. It says he makes plain or clear the mystery of the gospel. When you were far off, just like me, when you needed high measure of grace because you were so distant, just like me, then just as I experienced, if I could experience, then so can you, right? Because he experienced it, he had to express it, right? The mystery of the gospel hasn't changed today. We were far off. Just like Paul, we were far off, just like the Gentiles. We were far off, just like the Gentiles who are in your life, who you don't like, who you don't want to be around, who seem distant from God, who you're like, I can't even look at them, and they need Jesus. And so we have to be people who say, we've embraced such a grace of God, we can't help but go to our Gentiles and express it too. That's what he's saying to them. Gosh, I... I experienced it, I expressed it to you, and it's a model for you. It's a beautiful expression of being people of grace. The takeaway, Paul has a radical conversion. It reveals mystery that leads to calling. If you're taking notes, you need to write that down. The takeaway, Paul experienced a radical grace-filled conversion that he didn't earn, 
And in that, it all of a sudden revealed the mystery that he was one who was far off from God and didn't realize it just like the Gentiles were. And so it revealed the mystery of God's grace and boundless riches of love for him, which then led us. And then therefore I am led to a calling then to bring grace and the good news and the mystery to those who don't have it. This is the ingredient of his life. He has conversion. He has the revelation of the mystery of God that implies to him also, which then leads to a calling. This is the model for us. If you know Jesus, you've had your own conversion. It should lead you to your own revelation of the mystery of God's grace for your life. That should then lead to calling because verse 10 through 12 is God's plan. God's plan is very simple in the scripture. The church. What is God's plan for salvation of the world? The church. Through the church, specifically Paul speaking, Jew and Gentile together, right? As God's united people with the wall of hostility down through us, the church, through the church, God's wisdom would be on display to glorify him, make much of him, to exalt him. Yes, to the world doesn't know him, but also to the entire heavenly host. Every demon in hell would recognize, uh-oh, it's the church. Like, that's the point that he's making. Hey, the plan, he's uniting all of you together. He's unifying you as one people. And the church, that's what it's saying, the church is the expression of God's wisdom. Say another way. How do we know God is wise? The church. That's crazy. The manifest, wisdom, the manifest wisdom of God is that he took people who were far off, he brought them together as one, he put his spirit in them and empowered them, so the demons in hell go, oh my gosh, God is so smart. Ah! I would like to know that church. I would like to be part of that church. I would like to be part of the manifold wisdom and the manifest wisdom, manifest wisdom of God. I would like the demons in hell to go, oh, there's Steve in the church. Ah! Because of the, his work, we have freedom. Because of his work, we can confidently come to him, verse 10 through 12, because we are adopted as sons and daughters. God's plan, his wisdom was to empower his church for everyone and everything in the world to see. You can't miss it. God is displaying his church, Jew and Gentile together, as his crowning achievement that will cause the demons to take notice. We are his inheritance, we are his crowning achievement. The church's very existence and conduct are making known how great God's plan for salvation is, both to people and to powers. This shows the unparalleled importance of the church, which therefore shows the importance of our unity. So, the church, manifold wisdom, right? Man, so we have this moment over here, right? We've 
we, we have this conversion. We have an understanding of the mystery. We have this calling now to be the church, right? This is the manifold wisdom of God for the entire world to see both human beings and the demons in hell who will tremble because one day they recognize they will bow down and worship this God as Lord and as Lord right over them even. And so he's this moment, right? And we are this. And so Paul comes back and says, this is a reality. This is what's going on here. As I press pause and pray for you, you have to know these things before I pray for you. Let me sum everything up and make sure you understand everything, what I'm modeling for you, right? So we go back to verse 13 because this is why I'm suffering. Paul's suffering, verse 13, right? Paul comes back to the reality of being in prison. But it takes, but listen, he takes the focus off of his situation and his suffering and he brings it back to the divine purpose for which he is in prison. He's in prison for their sake. So they can be the church. So they are not left out. So that they can be one. He's in prison. Listen, it's not about my suffering. It's about you being who God's called you to be. That's why I'm here. I'm doing it for you. Turn up, put up the last, the last verse 13 for me. Daniel on here. Go back. You don't mind. There we go. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. My sufferings for you, which are your glory or for your glory, for your exaltation, for you being lifted up, you being placed where God wants to place you in the context of his family. So recognize this. You have to understand something important. Paul is suffering. Like you think about Roman prisons, he is suffering. We don't know to what degree, but history tells us that Roman prisons were not pleasant and that suffering was a real and present part of any prisoner's experience. We see in verse 13 that his readers are discouraged and we have to assume because they at least understand how prison works or maybe they're hearing stories of what's happening to Paul while he's in prison. We're not exactly sure, but either they know of prisons or they hear what's happening with Paul in his specific prison and they're discouraged. And Paul says clearly, don't be discouraged. Oh my gosh. And this is Paul saying these verses. This is God's calling. It's my life calling. It's the life I've chosen and I'm doing it for you. Paul is driven by his love for Jesus because of the undeserved love that he received. In turn, Paul is compelled to give what he's received. I've been loved. So I've, I love Jesus suffered. Now I suffer. And more than likely, he recognizes, and I'm suffering because you too will suffer so that those who come after you when they suffer, right? He's modeling. He's imitating. He's saying, and so you have to recognize it's not about my suffering. That's not my focus. My my focus is on Jesus, and my focus is on his calling of making sure that you are being unified as one church because, man, that is the wisdom of God for the entire world to see. In this, he went from being a murderer of Christians and a hater of Jesus to a lover of Jesus and a servant of Gentiles. It speaks to the power of his experience. It speaks to the nature of his radical conversion. It speaks to the power of God's transformation in his life. It speaks to his ownership of the gospel, his ownership of God's plan, so much that he's willing to be imprisoned and celebrate it. The theology of hardship is not clearly addressed here, but it's important to note that Paul's focus is not on the hardship, but it's on the purpose. What God's doing. He didn't lose sight of Jesus, but instead stayed focused on what God was doing through it. 
How many of us, in the context of our life, little persecution, little difficulty happens, and what does it become? Our focus. And Paul is modeling for us, listen guys, the persecution, the suffering, the tension, that, I mean, that can't become, that can't become the focus. The frustration you're experiencing can't become the focus. Remember Asa said, all of this, all these things he couldn't understand, all of his frustrations and tensions, I think in Psalm 72, all of these things, says all of this was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of the Lord and saw Jesus, and then I understood. He said, I was focused on this until I saw Jesus, and my eyes got focused on him. Paul's saying, I'm not focused on my sufferings, I'm focused on Jesus. I'm not focused on the suffering and the sacrifice, I'm focused on the calling, and it drives, it leads, and it guides me. The purpose of Paul's work was to obey God, right? But it was to bring unity among those who were opposed and separated through the grace and love of Jesus. He is giving his life so the church could be unified in their knowledge of Jesus and their surrender to Jesus and their following and their own lordship of giving lordship to Jesus. This is the reason he's suffering. So all these ingredients, Paul's conversion, his revelation, the revelation of the mystery, his calling, and his willingness to suffer. These are the ingredients for us that Paul is modeling. This is my life. Man, I was converted powerfully by God's grace, and it awakened me to the mystery that those who are far off can be brought near, right? And in that, then I recognize, man, that's God's calling on my life. I'm going to partner with him. And in that calling, is going to lead me to suffering. And in that suffering, that's just part of it because it then empowers and enables others who are suffering. As I am suffering, so they too suffer. As I'm focusing on Jesus in my suffering, then they too can focus on Jesus in their suffering. Because we got to press pause, y'all, before I pray for you. You have to understand these ingredients. You have to understand my conversion. You have to understand the revelation of the mystery of God's will. You have to understand now the calling. And you have to understand that it's completely okay that I'm suffering. Because it's for you. And that's okay. And I'm willing to suffer until I die for you. I'm willing to take those who are far off, because the calling's never changed, has it? I'm willing to not focus on myself. I'm willing not to be the center of my own world. I'm willing to focus on Jesus. So, the questions, this is like, this is your story, like what is our story here, right? Paul's pause should cause us to pause. There's a few questions to ask ourselves. We believe as strongly in the church as Paul. Right? I mean, it's just a question. Like, it's not, this is not a condemning question. It's just, like, do we have the same conviction of the church? Just look around because you're looking at the church. Vintage 242 is not the church. You are the church coming together stone upon stone upon stone, right? Do you have, do you believe as strongly in the church as Paul? Do, are you willing, number two, to sacrifice for unity in the church? That's what he's doing. Like, when I say unity, like, I mean, are you willing to sacrifice and suffer so that those who are outside and distant could be connected? Are you willing to sacrifice and suffer so this tension inside the church between believers would go away because we recognize unity is that important? Are you willing to humble yourself? Are we willing to sacrifice in the church? And are the ingredients of your life, conversion, understanding the mystery, calling, sacrifice, and service, are they alive and active? Have you been so, like, and this is birth, but hear this, this is, this is the end of my sermon. It begins with an understanding, listen, it begins with an understanding of God's grace. It begins with an understanding of his sacrifice. 
because Jesus was the first model? Hey, in my freedom, I'm sitting in heaven just enjoying life, having a grand old time, me and the angels, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, having a great time. We were playing tennis every day, guys. It's fantastic, right? I'm getting out, right? They're hanging out. They're doing life. They don't play tennis, probably. So this whole dynamic, they're just doing life. And he says, no, the plan, I have to go because I have to raise up the church. I have to go, right? The calling on his life, Jesus, the sacrifice that defined every, why? For your glory, so you could be raised up. It was the model. Paul just embraced the model of Jesus, and now he's asking the Gentiles and Jews, this church, to model it too. And he's looking at us today saying, here's the model for you all, and here are the ingredients. You're understanding God's grace. Of him loving you when you didn't deserve it. And it awakens you because you are worthless in and of yourself apart from God. So too then you have a calling to those who seemingly are worthless apart from God's grace. And they are worthy in the same way that you are worthy. They are loved by God. So you have a calling upon your life. And your life then must be marked by sacrifice and suffering and never giving up because they don't know him. And we're like, yes. That sounds like a life worth living. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your model, and we thank you for the way that Paul modeled his life. To the point where he could say, just imitate me as I imitate Christ, and it will lead you to be Christ-like. Lord, I pray for us as church, Lord, that we would embrace this calling, we would embrace this grace, we would embrace this movement, Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would awaken us to this pause of recognizing this is a moment to pause in our own lives and go, all right, where am I? What's going on? And who am I? Who am I in the eyes of God? Who is God? Who is Jesus to me? I pray, Father, this morning for those who do not know Jesus this morning. God, those who feel and maybe actually are far off and distant. Father, we're asking in Jesus' name that you would come like you did to Paul and that you would awaken them. God, we can't prove you to them. It's not our responsibility. Our job is simply to be faithful and then it's your job to convict them of what is true. It's the Holy Spirit. We just say again, thank you for your love for those who are far off and who are distant. Thank you, God, for the way that you love those who we can't really see fully and who they are. I pray, Father, today that you would take those who are far off and if they don't know you, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself and that you would save them today in Jesus' name. We ask now, God, that you would quiet the voice of the enemy. We ask now, God, in Jesus' name, that you would break off lies that they have believed about you and about themselves. We're asking in Jesus' name for salvation. We pray this morning, God, for the places that you're burning in the lives and the hearts of people right now. That, God, would you just fan into flame, not fire, in Jesus' name, for salvation. Come, Holy Spirit. Jesus, more of you this morning. Awakening in Jesus' name. Come, Holy Spirit, where there's been death, we speak life in Jesus' name. Where there's been a lack of healing and brokenness, we speak healing and the working of miracles today in Jesus' name. Father, now that we would, as a church, be your manifold witness and your manifold wisdom, 
And that as people see us, they would see you. We need you, Jesus. We can't be Christ-like apart from you being Jesus in us. Come, Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. Offering baskets available for those who came ready to give. I just encourage you, if you have scaled back from this act of worship from the last several months, I encourage you to step back into that. This is an act of obedience that God calls us to all the way from the very beginning of the Old Testament, saying, hey, what God has given you, we give back. At least 10%. This is God's gift, right? God's gift, giving it back to Him. I encourage you to, to step back in. That's something you side away from as an act of worship. Two communions available for those who came this morning. Like, I want to engage the gospel of Jesus again because it's alive and active. And that's you who come this morning so God can just remind and reawaken us of who He is today. Ministry teams will be available on both sides. What do they do? Well, they can lead you to Jesus. If you don't know him, they would love to introduce you to him this morning. Or if you just have a need of prayer of anything going on in your life, they would love to pray for you this morning for healing, for breakthrough, and for restoration. So you respond as the Lord leads. This is the official end of our service. So you are officially free to go. Don't forget to get your kids before you leave. That's important. And uh, you guys have a great week, and we'll see you soon.